Hello and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends, a podcast from your friends at MI6HQ and the magazine MI6 Confidential. I'm Paul Atkinson. Today we're talking about news, we think. We're a bit shocked ourselves, so bear with us. Um, which basically means that, as, as usual, a well-prepared, well-thought-out podcast. And to join me doing that, conducting such an endeavour, is Bill Koenig, David Lee, James Page, Sean Lompmore, Lisa Funnell, and Calvin Dyson. Could you introduce yourselves, please? Uh, hello, everybody. I'm uh, Bill Koenig, and I run a blog called The Spy Command. David Lee here, and I run the uh, James Bond dossier. And I'm also the author of The Complete Guide to the Drinks of James Bond, should you uh, wish to buy that. Hi, I'm James Page. I'm in the peanut gallery this week, and uh, the dog ate my homework. Mm-hmm. But I'm Sean Longmore. I'm a graphic designer. I sometimes do James Bondy things, and I love all you guys. You're all great. Uh, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm a university professor, award-winning author, and podcaster, specializing in gender in James Bond and other action films. And I'm Calvin Dyson, and I have a YouTube channel, and I forgot how awful it is to follow Dr. Lisa in these initial introductions, <laughs> like, with genuine qualifications and uh, academic prestige. But write but, write uh, a book, Calvin, uh, yes. and then win an award so you can say you're also an uh, award-winning author. That's all you need to <laughs> Not do. Not much out. Yeah, no, I normally try to log in a bit earlier before Lisa to try and afford <laughs> <you this. laughs> Oh, Calvin, you are so bright and articulate, and I love having you on the podcast. So don't feel that way ever. Your ideas are awesome. Oh, I feel validated now. Thank you. If all all else fails, Calvin, just do your Blofeld's cat voice. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, I feel like we're in a funny position where we are anticipating a thing happening, and... Mm. We're now reading things that were written in about 2020, maybe even 2019, and some of them are just starting to, some of them are just starting to see the light of day. Is it a little bit surreal looking back through the the hourglass to see what life was like pre-pandemic when journalists were standing on sets next to Daniel Craig without masks, and they have to like edit their intros right to explain that? Um, the thing that I found interesting this week was. Both Daniel Craig's interview with Total Film, which was probably done two years ago in August, so almost two years ago, came out. And also Leia Sadu did a contemporary one. Everybody was pulling the Craig quote that he says, no time to die is about love and family, and that's what the whole film's about. And then at, and then Leia Sadu comes out and says, um, "It's of course it's entertainment, it's not about relationships or, or love, it's just made to entertain. <laughs> so I don't think Leia Sadu got the memo. No. About what the film's about. Those are very different interpretations. <laughs> <Same> <laughs> right. Kind of makes me feel a little like, what are we going to watch? Like, is maybe, this a cohesive mm, film? Maybe it's relative to their other work. Because mm. Lacey does very small yet. personal films. I'm making yeah, this true. <laughs> <laughs> well, she says she had and she cried at the end. So if it's just entertainment, why does she cry at the end? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Anna de Armas, uh, not only did she get the memo, it was a memo that was probably like uh, on ancient paper and probably like would break into pieces if you touched it because she was talking about how her character is unlike all those other Bond women. So that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's tried and true. It was built into her contract. Yeah. <laughs> they should really get that laminated, shouldn't they? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those talking yeah, points, yeah. yeah. There, there, there's another interview uh, from a while ago when she said the only film that she'd seen was Skyfall, so... Uh, you Which know, was at the uh, premiere in Spain. That's where she saw it. Ah, yes, perhaps. Because we tweeted and that so, we tweeted that picture of 2012 of Anna de Armas outside the Bond premiere, which is okay. Spooky. 2012 was, was, was she of yeah. legal age then? <laughs> she looks exactly the same. <laughs> but you want to know what? That actually makes me a bit hopeful. I mean, if your if your bit like line of what Bond women um, are about it's Skyfall, if that's what you're measuring things against. Like, I don't think that the women in Skyfall are particularly empowered. Um, And I've talked on this podcast a lot about how, like, each woman sort of has her power taken away from her. Um, Then maybe, yeah, like, that kind of excites me. If that's not what you're doing, you're doing something totally different from your perspective, uh, that might be really exciting. So I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing, let's put it that way. Although it is the line that every woman who is featured in a Bond film tends to give is I'm a a different Bond girl, different Bond girl, different Bond girl, different Bond woman. Um, So I mean, she's definitely saying the company line, but from her perspective, it could actually be reflective of being different from what came before. Yeah, because she's only going to be in it for two minutes. (laughs) But it's it's also... It's also the fact that, she, uh, yeah, I'm a huge Bond fan. I've seen Skyfall. Well, also, I mean, it's been it's been a talking point since at least 1977. And, um, I mean, because uh, Leia Seydoux said the same thing during the run-up to Spectre. And, mm-hmm. I mean, you could research all of it. It's just, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I mean, Eon takes great pride. They say, we handle all the uh, PR and publicity, so... It's a talking point they uh, they've held on to tightly, and of course Barbara Broccoli said the same thing in a 2012 interview. So it's, I mean, it's been around in, for a while. In one sense, it's true because she's a different character, but in another <laughs> sense, it's kind of poor PR form to shit on what you've done in the past, there, right? There, there's never been a Bond woman named Paloma before, so yes, mine's unique. Um, no, you're right. You're you're absolutely right, Paul, because that that's an interesting marketing technique. Yeah, all those other bombs, they were crap, but you know, they're bimbos, but mine's great. I mean, that's kind of the what what that's how it kind of comes out. Um and 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 also, I mean, I would argue that for their time, the likes of Honey Rider and Pussy Galore and um Fiona Volpe were were quite independent uh women. Um, you know, for the context of the sixties, I mean, you know, it's just, it's, you know, like I say, it's, it's, it's just a talking point they've held on to. And they're, they're essentially counting on the fact that, uh, the people who remember the fact they keep repeating it are a fairly small part of the audience and, you know, the, the greater, they've they've already got their money anyway. Right. But I think it raises a question about marketing because I, it, it makes me think that a much stronger line of argument is to say, I am part of a legacy of strong women of bond. And like, it's this idea, it happens sometimes at, with academics, right? This idea that you have to put down everything that came before in order to elevate what you are doing in the present. And, and it's a very sort of, I don't want to say like an immature academic thing. Like usually like people who are grad students or early academics feel like that's the way you have to justify yourself. And as you sort of grow up and you start uh, and growing into being an academic, you realize like you don't have to throw away everything that came before in order to position yourself. You can contextualize what you're doing with the positive things that also happen 
happened in the past. And so I would love to see a woman in a Bond film being like, yeah, I, 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 represent some of the strength and the empowerment that women throughout the decades of, of, of this franchise have, have had instead of this, this very consistent, I'm different, I'm different, I'm different. Because what you're saying is you recognize that there are issues of the past and it just feels, mm. I don't know, it feels like you're putting down your franchise rather than saying I'm part right. of a tradition of excellence. Yes, that's exactly what it feels like. But mm-hmm. when you have the boss doing that, like I said, in that 2012 interview mm-hmm. where she said, you know, the, used to have the uh, bond women who just held a clipboard but not anymore like wait a minute oh come yeah. whoa time Cut out. To shot of Leia Stu holding a clipboard right yeah right um so what you're saying Lisa, is uh, instead of knocking down what came before they could come out with the like i'm standing on the shoulder of giants kind of approach instead yeah, absolutely. And then looking at the redeemable qualities, like, you know what I mean? Like nothing's perfect. Women have changed cinematically over the last, I don't know, six decades, right? But recognizing that there were there were some pretty strong and empowered women in the 1960s and especially in like the 1990s that people gravitate towards. You don't have to tear the entire like representation of women down to just make what you're doing different. So you know who does, you know who does that? All the actors that play the Bond villains. They always say, mm-hmm. what a great club to be a member of. All these great right. actors before me. Um, and yes. even Rami Malek came out and said that, which was like, oh, to join the ranks of Mads Mikkelsen and Javier Bardem and stuff. It's like, what a, what a, what a challenge for an actor and everything. Mm-hmm. No, women could do the same thing. They could, do, they could say the same yep. thing. Well, and, and to piggyback on just what Lisa just said, it's like you, you, you acknowledge that characters have evolved with the times, but you, know, it's not, but, but you don't say the ones that came before were a bunch of crap. Uh, mm-hmm. you, yeah, I mean, Lisa, you, you phrase it pretty well. I mean, you know, it's like a tradition of excellence and I'm, and, you know, Diana Rigg, I mean, yeah, I mean, Diana Rigg's sort of Tracy persona was helped to a degree by her being in the Avengers prior to that movie. But still, I mean, you know, I mean, Diana Rigg was one of the greatest British actresses of the 20th century, early 21st century. Mm-hmm. It's, it's I, like... Um... I'd, I'd quite like to push this conversation in a slightly different direction um, mm-hmm. by entertaining the idea that maybe actually Nomi's character is going to be something that we haven't seen in James Bond for a little while. Um, when you read the quotes about her training and her work and you saw the trailer, were you excited by the prospect of having a character like that in a James Bond film? I think it depends on the film. It depends how the part's been written and uh, what mm-hmm. her role is. Uh, it, it it doesn't yeah it, it doesn't uh, thrill me and it doesn't put me off. I just see what it, what it what it is. Paul, just to be clear, you're asking about Nomi rather than Paloma, correct? Yeah, I think so. I okay. mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I only the only reason I ask is because you know I I'd seen the quotes from uh, Ana de Armas about Paloma, so that was just me clarifying the. Yeah, oh, sure sorry, I, I, I thought you were talking about Paloma. Sure, sorry. Um, they both are actually. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it's the, the same answer. If it's, <laughs> it depends how it's done. If it works in the film, then it's fine. Uh, if it if it doesn't work, then no. I do have to agree with what David said because it, it it's hard to sort of judge these things just on the basis of the premise, but. When it comes to know me anyway, Paloma, I don't have much of a feeling for, but know me based on how they're setting her up as another double O agent, you know, uh, coming in and sort of shaking up Bond's world and having some uh, 
back and forth with him. I'm really excited for that. Like, I'm I'm really excited because it, it sounds like something we've never really had in the series. Obviously, he's paired up with other agents before, but not ones that have been so close to home and kind of his replacements, really. So I, I'm 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 very excited. I'm more excited to see what how Bond's interactions with her are in the film than I think I am probably uh Safin, Paloma. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Uh, and I was about to say I've seen some mostly guys complain about oh Bond's taking all this lip from Nomi and the you know what we see in the uh, trailers and such. But sort of in real life, you know, like if someone's been away and they were like supposed to be a living legend at, you know, a company and then they come back, you know, like the people who you know, or like there five years later, like, why is this guy so great? Why is he a mm. living legend? I mean, I think there's sort of a natural skepticism of people who are there. I mean, again, in the context of No Time to Die, Bond's been away for five years. Nomi's been, you know, an active double O agent for at least some of that period. Mm-hmm. Like, who's this guy? I mean, P- I mean, Trust me, people forget about you a lot quicker than <laughs> I think. It's like, it's pretty, I mean, unless you're like a, a prominent athlete they don't build statues to you you know it's like <laughs> oh no and i mean you know i think you know see you see a lot of people pushing back on like oh how can people be disrespectful to bond and stuff and it's like that's been built into the series since the 60s and guy hamilton oh, yeah. talked about it in interviews where it's like you know you 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 can put bond down you can have the villains and the characters around him kind of take the mickey out of him because he's always going to come good in the end and win and i think they i have the quote here from that total film article where uh, craig says uh, what we wanted to do was not ridicule him. It's sharing in the fun with the audience, but you've got to be respectful of what it is. And I think, yeah, no, it's, uh, that's fine. It's 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 going back to that Guy Hamilton thing of Bond's going to come good in the end because he is the hero and they know that. So if we have a bit of fun along the way, I think that's... Uh, I hope people take it in the spirit of, um, of good fun. Well, and as early as Goldfinger, you have Desmond Llewellyn kind of like kind of sighing when bond comes in like oh you don't treat my gadgets with any respect i mean and that was a guy hamilton thing i mean the way Mm. desmond llewellyn told the story in one of the making of uh home videos was that you know it when they first started doing the take you know it's like his cue was treating bond with respect and like hamilton waved him off no 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 he doesn't treat your gadgets with respect you and so hmm. he supposedly it was his idea to build in that tension between Bond and Q because, you know, in From Russia with Love, I mean, it was such a brief scene, you didn't really have an opportunity for that. Whereupon the uh, introduction of the Aston Martin, you know, ran on for a few minutes longer and it gave, you know, uh, Llewellyn some time to build that into his character. And then, of course, it carried on for, you know, the future times that Llewellyn worked with Connery. Yeah, but but also M uh, M uh, appears to barely tolerate Bond in many of the films. Uh, you, you just have the uh-huh. feeling that if it weren't for the fact that Bond is so effective, uh, Bond would just be gone. Mm. Yeah, I mean that lasted all the way through the Man with the Golden Gun, at least, and then suddenly in the Spy Who Loved Me, M is kind of treating Bond a little more warmly because there was that scene in the uh, Egyptian. Uh, facility of MI6 where um, Anya and Bond are kind of like showing, you know, they're each showing off how much they know. And at one point M says somewhat warmly, well done, James, which 
I, and I remember watching that first time in the theater. I was like, whoa, like what, what happened in the last few movies where he seemed to be like ready to bite Bond's head off at the, any provocation. But I think if you take that point, I'm going to take a different chunk out of that. Bond and, and, and Amosava are taking it out of each other. There's banter. And I think that that's something that has always defined Bond's relationship with women. Now, oftentimes it's been one-sided where it's Bond who cracks the jokes at the expense of women. There's a very long history of that. But you can have a playful dynamic between two characters um, who are just sort of bantering back and forth and, and, and positioning themselves. You have sort of the old guard and the new guard and one spot and one double O. And this, this idea that there would be no tension between them, I think is very idealistic. And so do I want to see tension there? Absolutely. But that's the premise of every buddy cop film that's out there, right? You have two people, different walks of life. You know, they, they, they don't like each other. They're competitive with each other. And there's differences galore there, but they have to team up for the broader good because, you know, they can't do it on their own. We need sort of this collective idea. And I think that's really what this film is about is Bond's going to step into and come back to the space. Things have changed. It's going to be weird. It's going to be awkward. There's going to be tension. But then the whole crew is going to get together because the world depends on them working together. And what I'm excited to see is Bond being populated and surrounded by a whole bunch of different faces. And I really mean the like different as in the diversity of faces, seeing Bond with more than one woman of color, you know, supporting him in the field and then having Felix Leiter um, come in and we have a cast and, and sort of like this insulated like MI6 uh, crew with, of course, CIA, uh, but Bond's central crew that has more racial diversity in it concentrated than most films do. And so I really like this idea of Bond having banter with a whole bunch of different people and then coming together and doing what is best to save the world. So I, I think that it's a positive thing. I don't think it's this idea like no one can talk down to Bond. I mean, show Judy Dench in GoldenEye talking to Bond and calling him a sexist, misogynistic dinosaur. And you want to know what people still cheer when they watch it because they're like, yeah, you tell them. This is what we think. Uh, things like that, they do tend to have um, this long shelf life and people still are like, yeah, maybe Bond needs to be you know, told um, and critiqued every now and then. So I don't see it as a, as a bad thing. Do you think that, um, that diversity comes from Fukunaga's direction or from somewhere else? I suspect it's more than Fukunaga, but he's probably part of it because, I mean, the fact that, again, they brought in Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I think, uh, in part to build up some of the women characters, at least that was described in the Total Film article. But I also um, think that we're we're moving towards a climate. Sorry to cut you off there, Bill. Um, a climate and a culture that is becoming more attentive to aspects of equity diversity and inclusion. And that comes in part of casting. You're seeing critiques happening all the time where, you know, it's, it's a very white cast and you're wondering where's the diversity. And of course, critiques when it comes to the representation of women in the wake of the Me Too movement. And so I feel as though there's been like a cultural shift and, and some of that is now leading into just cultural producers recognizing the importance of having um, the, the people and the agents or the characters in their film actually be representative of, of the population at large. So I feel as though like there's social factors 
actors, in addition to a director and a script writer coming in and bringing with them um, in those positions, arguing for or bringing in um, additional people. Well, you know, that's been going on in the Bond films for a while, but it's expanding because, of course, uh, you know, Felix was a white guy in the novels. And first in Never Say Never Again, they cast Bernie Casey in the role. And then Jeffrey Wright, you know, since 2006 in the Eon series. And then, of course, Naomi Harris, uh, you know, making Money Penny a person of color. And this has been going on in, you know, other series as well. I mean, you know, just real quick, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe, like, you know, Nick Fury was a white guy and they cast Samuel L. Jackson. Um, and there are other examples of this uh, in, in other franchises, other uh, other one-off movies. Is that a good pivot to talk about Marvel, Bill? Uh, if we want to talk briefly about the, the Bond connections in Black Widow, sure. So spoilers, if you haven't seen Black Widow, right? Or is it really a spoiler? I mean, it's kind of background radiation, right? I haven't uh, seen it, so I can't talk about it. <laughs> well, well, specifically, you know, uh, um, the Black Widow is like, you know, is watching Moonraker. <laughs> you know, and, we see, and we see some clips from Moonraker. And John Barry even gets a credit in the end titles of Black Widow for hmm. a piece of music, you know, Bond Fights Snake. That's the title of the piece of music. Um, but there's some other stylistic things. I've seen some Bond fans kind of, I'm thinking that they might be going a little far, but you know what? I, I'm not, I, I can't really argue against it. There's this like one sort of stylistic thing at the beginning of the movie. And some people say, Oh, that's kind of like, like the equivalent of a gun barrel. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's clearly there's an awareness of uh, Bond films in it. Is that the biggest example we can think of of a Bond movie inside another movie? Um, actually, I would say Black Panther is probably more more so of, of a Marvel film because there's a whole sequence that seems really based on uh, the casino sequence from Skyfall, both in mood and the way the shots are, are made. James just meant somebody watching James Bond. Or, or, or overtly referencing it, right? <laughs> by name or whatever i know it's in tv it's tv is quite common right i mean there's episodes yeah. of buffy and stuff where they do it but an archer obviously and obviously you know 75 percent of any mission impossible movie i guess um well and 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 the second hawaii 50 tv show there were like three or four things where they were like clearly doing swipes there was this one episode that was mostly set in uh, north korea and they had the in, in the pre-titles of Die Another Day, it's like all the North Korean sequences, it's like dark. It's like, it's like this filter over the camera or something. And they did the same effect in the, uh, in the Hawaii Five-0. This is from like oh, 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. I mean, clearly the, they had seen Die Another Day. It's like why you would like seek out to copy something or quote, do an homage to, some, to Die Another Day. I don't know, but clearly... Clearly, they did. I know the Kingsman does broad references to it, don't they? When Samuel L. Jackson talks about being like like a Bond villain, or at least mm. I read into that when he talked about like being a, vol- a villain and villainy and a whole bunch of stuff. But like, usually, I would I would agree that it's more on television that it's more frequent and fluent um, 
and I think maybe it's just easier on television as well. You've got a lot more ground to cover. So you can, especially in spy shows and stuff that you can pull in, like Chuck pulls in, Burn Notice. Those are sort of two that I've recently watched that I'm like, oh, Bond references all the time, name drop stuff, but usually not like overt missions or like copying actual uh, uh, films. I, I, I think, sorry, I'm going to jump in here. I think it's really interesting. And I think there was, uh, I've seen Black Widow and I thought it was fantastic and I don't want to spoil too much. I really enjoyed it. And there is a lot of Bond sort of stylistic elements in there. Um, and there's some more major plot things. I think there could be, you could see some parallels between the plot of Black Widow and the plot of um, On a Majesty's Secret Service. There's a kind of a lot going off there. And um, there's some certain design choices. There's one particular sort of, um, it's not really a space station, but it's that kind of thing that looks very similar to Drax's space station from Moonraker. So there's more stuff there. And I think it opens a wider question now where we're getting to a point of there's a lot of sort of like postmodern referencing going off in film. Can you really have, with the way James Bond has sort of shaped the spy genre, can you even make a spy film anymore that doesn't in some way reference or parallel James Bond? Has James Bond had that much influence over the genre, similar to perhaps how Star Wars or Star Trek has over the sci-fi genre? Kind of depends on how hard you look well, for it, though, doesn't it? longevity alone... I mean, there have been so many Bond films and they've gone on for such a long time. Um, it's kind of bound to happen. Uh, I agree, agree with you about Kingsman. Um, you know, there are Bond tropes or Bond-like tropes, but there are also other tropes. I mean, it's like uh, Matthew Vaughn. Right. Kind of, he's like a vacuum cleaner when it comes to tropes. He's like, you know, he's... <laughs> he's, he's uh, picking up all sorts of ones from TV in addition to Bond films. Um, but yeah, it, well, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see, won't we? Well, and, and also, I mean, going, going back to the original, um, the original spy craze, I mean, the Avengers TV show actually debuted before the Bond films, but, you know, John Steed had a lot, a lot rougher edge initially, but then like once the Bond films came out, well, we got to go in this direction. And so, so like, you know, Steed becomes much more sophisticated to the point where he can, uh, he can identify not only what vineyard a wine is from, but which end of the vineyard. I mean, cause they, they, I guess they feel the pressure to, you know, follow the Bond route. I, I was just going to say that, um, uh, not, not not cinematically, but or, or television. But um, I, I tend to read thrillers, and an awful lot of thrillers, uh, they and unless they're period uh, pieces, they almost always make some reference to Bond. Mm -hmm. It's uh, you know it, it, there's a you know, and it, usually it's something as silly as oh, who do you think you are, James Bond or something? It's yeah, you know, it, it's just just that, but it, it's it's almost inevitable that at some point you will uh read something about bond yeah i think there was um barbara rockley said this i think maybe at the 50th anniversary or something she said like if you read a lot of news not a day will go by where you don't see a james bond reference somewhere in the media because it's yep. just easy headlines right or comparisons or, or whatever and especially everything that's going on right now but you mentioned matthew vaughn bill so we should really talk about um somebody probably taking their hat out of the ring to replace craig that's right. And that would be uh, Henry Cavill, who is signed on to play a spy in some new movie that Vaughn is doing. It's based on a novel that's not published yet, is my understanding. But uh, 
Oh, I'm sorry. I can't remember the title now. Argo. Yes. Thank you. Uh, But yeah, so Cavill is going to be the, you know, sort of like the, the lead spy in this. And, you know, I mean, Cavill's now 38 and it's like, you know, he, he's not getting any younger and, and I've been skeptical about his chances of being the next Bond anyway. And just by signing on for this project, because he's already, you know, done others. So, I I just can't imagine you know Eon would take him seriously. No, I, at this I point. think he's this generation's Clive Owen. Yeah, yeah. Because we had ten years of Clive Owen as the next one, didn't we? Right. Much. Is anybody excited for Henry Cavill doing a Bond-like character in a Matthew Vaughan film that's going to have heavy Bond references? Uh, well, oh, take out the Matthew Vaughan, and we already kind of had that with the uh, the Man from Uncle in in a lot of ways. Uh, so, you know, maybe he'll eventually get That's his long running spy yeah. role. <laughs> he seems to be trying for it. Well, it, around 2004, 2005, um, Matthew Vaughn threw his hat in the ring to do The Man from Uncle. But he even said, like, oh, this will have nothing to do with the TV show. I just want the title and I'm going to do my own thing. And in, in looking back, that was probably the origin of, of Kingsman even then. And so then, I mean, then years later you had this comic book come out you know king you know kingsman that was technically what uh, the movie was based on but you know clearly matthew vaughn was leaning in something that direction anyway and and with this new project I, i'm going to be real surprised if it's much different than the kingsman films but we'll see nobody else is too excited then. oh i i'm really excited but not for matthew vaughn or henry cavill um, okay. For anyone that doesn't really follow me on social media or anything, but I'm a huge Dua Lipa fan, and it's going to be a first acting uh, role, so I'm over the mood about that. I can't wait to see see her in action. Guess nobody else cares about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't yeah. at all. Uh, you know what got more social media traction was uh, a week later, Mark Miller revealed that he's doing uh, the another world's greatest spy series, yeah, uh, for Netflix, and um, I thought the graphics look familiar. And so I just Googled Pierce Brosnan beard and literally the first image result was the exact same image as their poster art. <laughs> so, and then he admitted on our Twitter feed that he's a huge Pierce Brosnan fan. He's his favorite actor and he wants him to play the role. So, I mean, if it's well, not Pierce Brosnan in that series, I mean, whoever takes, it's going to be a bit like, well, they couldn't get Brosnan. So it's me. <laughs> so I do like all of this, raises questions in my mind. I I always get flack for being a Bond scholar. Like, why do you study Bond? And I'm like, because Bond is everywhere. And everyone's constantly referencing Bond. And even though you've never seen a Bond film, you know who James Bond is, all the codes and the conventions and so on. And I'm wondering, it like spy culture is now so just saturated by Bond. If that is something that starts to feel old, you know what I mean? Like this idea, like we're making, you know, Henry Cavill's in like a Bond-like film and this person in a Bond-like film. I don't know. Part of, like as, as someone who loves Bond, sure, that's great. But I also am, I guess, in many ways waiting for the next evolution or the next phase of spy culture, the next big influence um, to have sort of the same level of impact that Bond has had since the 60s. Like we're talking about like longstanding, pervasive influence and so like i think don't get me wrong love love me some spy movies but part of me is also like 
are we going to evolve beyond or add in extra elements? It just feels like we're building on top of bond or building bond out. And I don't know how I feel about all of that, but. Or have we hit a dead end? Like, have we hit the end? Like, this is where we end. Yeah. Well, that's how Dalton felt in 89, wasn't it? It's like, probably run out of ideas now. Um, yeah. <laughs> which um, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, speaking out of one mouth, said to um, the press that the next iteration is critical. I don't mm. think they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, no shit. <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't think they're wrong, but I think it was also with out of the other side of the mouth is kind of like they're trying to like lobby Amazon. The uh, presumably their their deal with MGM will eventually you know be approved by regulators. It hasn't been yet. Um, it does seem like they're very lobbying very hard to have executives they like at MGM now be retained by Amazon. And so that's kind of, that's this weird kind of three-dimensional chess game going on about lobbying and, and whatnot. No, I, I think that's a good point. It, it's um, if they do release statements, is it really intended for the general public or is it uh, actually aimed at, at uh, Amazon? Yeah. Well, in fact, I didn't, I just, I didn't even know about this. I just saw this today as we record. So like um, MGM has a, has a, another brand Orion, which is kind of their like lower budget, more serious brand of films. And so Barbara Broccoli is one of multiple producers on a film biography about Emmett Till, who was a young African-American man who was uh, killed and his death was a, one of the things that started the American civil rights movement. And so she's involved with that. And so, yeah, I mean, so she is involved with MGM on things other than bond. And apparently Michael G. Wilson is not involved in this Emmett Till project. At least he was not, he, you know, he was not listed among the producers in the uh, deadline Hollywood story. I read a couple hours before we recorded the, the other thing that interests me about the flood of news that we received is how much of it was based loosely or otherwise on the total film interview and the different spins you can put on it you know Felix or Jeffrey Wright felt like he was um sidelined for a while although that actually seemed to be saying something um something glibly or you know and that became a headline um mm. the the idea that it's uh you know finally Craig's final film also sort of was lifted from that and made into a headline um and I thought there was probably a broader question for the panel around, say, uh, you know, like, how do you want him to go out? Do you want him to go out in the way that so many other actors have gone out? Um, you know, maybe themselves a little bit uncertain about whether they'd come back so that the story doesn't really reflect that. Or mm. do you want the story to be conscious of the fact that this is kind of Daniel Craig's end? Oh, well, um, I think they're trying to have it both ways. Like, there are those quotes in there from Kerry Fukunaga. Um, again, I've got another one here. Uh, no one's trying to say some sort of long sentimental goodbye. It's just another you know, Bond film. The credits still say Bond will return. I didn't approach it as a last film. I approached it as, what am I inheriting? What can we do to make this a little bit fresh and exciting and subvert the expectations? So... It's interesting comparing that with some of the comments that they say later on in the article about it very much being built 
ground up as Craig's final thing. And it certainly sounds like they've, you know, it's a cap on his, you know, tenure, um, which is interesting, I think. Um, maybe they're deliberately trying to play it both ways so it doesn't seem like this is, you know, um, a, a sad last hurrah, but it is kind of a- another one, as um, as the director <laughs> said, I guess. So, like, for the longest time, Barbara Broccoli in her public statement said, I am in denial that this is Daniel's last movie. I can't deal with this. Then late, you know, just before pandemic, she finally acknowledged it. And I'd have to look up the, the date. And then, uh, and then, of course, after the pandemic, yes, she has said, yes. I, in fact, it was, I believe, the first um, of those official podcasts no time to die podcast the one real one they got out before the pandemic and so now she acknowledges it and uh, one of the key details in that total film article was that uh carrie fukunaga got invited to a meeting with her to mm-hmm. discuss future bonds for, you know from bond 26 and beyond and so I guess they had a fairly detailed conversation. And then they hired Danny Boyle to actually direct Bond 25. But he's, oh, well, I guess that was that. But then he eventually comes back into, you know, direct No Time to Die. There are some comments from Craig in the article that I'd love more elaboration on. He talks about how, you know, a big reason for him coming back was finishing the story, something to do with Vesper and Spectre and, um, you know, connecting it together. I'd love to know if that was still in the pot when Danny Boyle was doing it or if his comments are sort of specifically referring to the um, revised version of whatever Bond 25 was going to be that happened after uh, Danny Boyle left. Vesper Spectre and exploding volcanoes, eh? Yeah. <laughs> and then one, uh, then one other detail in that total film article was that they said that quote, once Danny Boyle and John Hodge were out of the picture for good, then it's like, okay, we'll go back to the Purvis and White script, which months and months and months ago they died. No, no, this is totally new. No, we didn't just pick up from that script. Well, gee, I guess they did. Uh, again, I guess they're hoping you forget those previous statements. And, you know, 90% of the public will, but, uh, which, yeah, which yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. How many people here are actually surprised by that, though? <laughs> well, that they lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they have a bottom drawer full of okay ideas that occasionally they dust off. Well, well, I mean, okay, we're talking about the same film franchise where they sign an actor, e.g. Pierce Brosnan, and then it doesn't happen, and then they get asked, point blank in an interview well what about pierce brosnan oh no we never signed him no never i mean this was on american television you can find this clip on youtube so it's like you know when when you go that far out and that long ago it's like well this is kind of the mo is there anything else that total film that caught your eye calvin um there are a couple of comments actually uh we haven't talked about craig referring to quantum of solace as a uh, the exact quote is the flawed movie that it is which i almost is punched it. the air when i read that line oh. <laughs> i was like i'm just going to quote that back to all these people that say quantum's his best film it's like oh no Well, I I thought like there was also a comment from Barbara Broccoli earlier on where she's talking about Spectre and she says, um, in quote, um, he he was so exhausted after that film. Uh, We'd had our own trials and tribulations on Spectre and Daniel had a massive injury. It was very difficult. So he just needed some time. And yeah, I I think it's interesting that they are acknowledging that, you know, maybe a couple of the films weren't as warmly accepted and maybe weren't as fun to make as some of the other ones. And I thought that that thing that she said about Spectre 
you know, we had our own trials and tribulations. It's um, it's subtle, but it's certainly, um, yeah, you do get the sense that, oh, maybe no one really had that good a time making that film. And, mm. you know, Craig needed time away. Sounds like they needed time away as well. And maybe that's one of the reasons, um, you know, of the many as to why this film's coming so late after Spectre. Well, one of the um, one of the clear signs that they were like less than um, enthusiastic about the way Quantum turned out was the fact. Then you have the Everything or Nothing documentary, and it's like there are a few clips, but not not many, and it's and the film isn't discussed in any kind of detail in that documentary. And and then you know go with the uh, main titles of Spectre. There's like of all the images which evoke the the Craig films is there I think there's one the the freefall sequence uh from quantum that's referenced but are there any others I'm trying to remember off the top of my head but I think I, uh, I, I think ahead. a couple of the pictures at the end in MI6 were shots from Quantum of Solace if we're really grasping at straws there but I'm but I'm just talking about the main title so oh sorry the, in the main titles, there's this one shot, you know, is of um, you know the two of them free falling with no parachute or one parachute, whatever it was. Um, but you know, like in the main titles, you don't see much. If aside from that one shot, you don't see much of anything. I mean, it's kind of like even within the Eon uh, biosphere, if you will, it's um, it, it's kind of this. I don't want to call it a bastard child, but it's kind of like eh, it's, it's kind being of a airbrushed, out, it's being airbrushed out of the family photo album. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, there have been over the past year or so, there have been like a lot of people trying to say, "Oh, this is a great film. This is a great film," and then I finally, it's like, okay, I'm going to let it go because, like, I didn't think it was such a great film. But then there was one that, and I forget the exact thing, but it just finally pushed me over the. Edge like no, I've got to like do a post reminding people about some of the problems, and then I got one response. This was on social media. It essentially said, "I agree with everything you said, but you shouldn't have said it." Like, oh, okay, all right, fine. Um, I can't really debate it on those terms, but like, all right, whatever. Well, I I, I was way ahead there because uh, uh. It, it, it's a very, very flawed film. I, I agree, but I uh, there came a point when I started to enjoy it. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to defend uh, its weaknesses, but uh, uh, I think, yeah, I, I do enjoy it. So well, I think, I think anyone can like it or not like it, and we we all have our preferences with Bond films. It's um, it, it it's when you're told that your opinion is wrong, basically, like oh that that's how you feel. Well, actually, you will find that it is actually a brilliant film, and this is why. And 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 the contrary is true as well. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, that all comes back down to personal preference because I think I do enjoy Quantum Slice. I think it's a great movie. I also think like because I also think Casino Royale 67 is a great movie and I also think the Avengers movie from the late 90s is a great movie <laughs> and it comes back to that thing of we all watch movies differently and we all watch them for different reasons like I don't I don't watch a movie for story for example I don't really mind if a film's got a poor story that you can't really follow I like to watch a movie for visuals or for special effects or for cinematography and lighting and that kind of thing and I think it all everyone can have their own preferences and everyone can like their own bits. There are good parts to every film, no matter what the movie, and there are bad parts to every film, no matter what the movie, but it's absolutely mm. all subjective. 
Hmm. Sorry, I said all that, and now I'm never going to get invited back, am I? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I agree. You, you, are, you are on the ledge with the Avengers, and you know. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah, that yeah, that that one was uh, uh, yeah diff- difficult to get past, but and uh, I, I, I do agree with you because uh, basically everybody everybody I I know basically hates my musical taste, but uh, uh, I know I've got good taste in music. I respect people for having individual tastes and for having like unique perspectives. And I have like, I love that about people. I think just sometimes the group thinking that happens on social media where like a whole bunch of people, like all of a sudden it just like becomes a thing that like, and it becomes the thing. Like now we all need to talk about it. For me, I just don't like sort of. Yeah, I don't like jumping on those bandwagons. And I think, you know, when you talk about having like unique taste in music, I think that's amazing. And and if 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 Sean, you like a, a film that other people really don't like in terms of the the Bond canon, sure. Like I think that that's all great and I think we were coming to it from different perspectives. It's just when it just becomes this overarching like now we all need to talk about it and all need to agree that this is what's going on. I just so I I, I don't think that way and I don't feel that that way. And regardless of my feelings towards Quantum of Solace, I mean, I've defended the film. But when I see so many people just jumping on it, I'm like, I yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to get involved you, you mean jumping on it like this is great and you don't understand why it's great? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, jumping on a bandwagon. Yeah. I respect Sean for, for acknowledging that sometimes you just want to see a big explosion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, all, we all feel that way sometimes, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> Except if it's the end of Spectre. <laughs> It's got to be filmed well. <laughs> I'm just saying, don't be big. Film it well. I think. It, I think. Though it, it really, there's there's a whole conversation we could have about the way we watch films, especially in a modern context now with social media and how what how we watch films personally. Can we sort of engage and have our own personal opinions as much now in a wider social media landscape? Um, and I think No Time to Die might be really interesting for that. Um, it'll, I think we've all waited that long that it's it's going to be really interesting. I'm I'm really excited to see what everyone's points of view will be immediately coming out of the movie before we've sort of like funneled down into that one community line of thought. I, I'm really excited to see how people mm. will be immediately responding. And if it is a, on the off chance an amazing movie, Will there be some people who think it's terrible and vice versa? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I think that's that kind of conversation really excites me a lot more than, like you say, Dr. Lisa, with all the sort of just funneled, single-minded thinking. No pun intended. It kind of makes me nostalgic for a time before I really experienced, which was... Um, having replays of films in the cinema so like there's a whole lot of old films that were made before i was born that i would love to see in the cinema but you have to wait for you know the one day out of five thousand <laughs> right to to attend a, 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 the film in the in the manner it was kind of intended in a sense um and i would sooner go and see a film i love and know i love in the cinema than i would take a punt on the next marvel film in the box office and I don't want um, another James Bond actor to have to die before I can go see a double bill of a Roger Moore. Right. Yeah. Well, on that note, if you're in the if you're in the UK and in the London area, you should get your ass to the Prince Charles Cinema. Right. Every weekend they're showing a Bond movie, and I think this weekend is Licensed to Kill. Mm. 
Yes, yes. It's, be- it's becoming the cathedral. I think the Church of Bond. I think somebody put on Twitter because every week they have a Bond movie on a Sunday. <laughs> they do. They, they had a full retrospective a few years ago, and I saw a few then. And I, yeah, no, I've not been any on, on this to any on this particular run. Um, I think they might have. Yeah, sold out because obviously it's distance, so it's not full capacity. But yeah, no, they're really great. They they show a lot of, and not even not even just Bond. I mean, it's a brilliant cinema anyway, uh, showing a lot of good old classics. I really wish we had that kind of stuff outside of London. Mm. So speaking of um, being uncomfortable going into cinema, <clears throat> um, we can't go an episode without talking about COVID. So um, <laughs> given all the changes that have happened since we've all got together last, um, how confident does everybody feel that the release will hold or will it be augmented in some way? And I'll, I'll start this off by saying, I was like 80 to 90% sure it was going to happen two weeks ago, and now I'm down to 50-50. Yeah, oh, I, I'm exactly the same as you, James. That's like totally <laughs> the numbers. And when it comes to uh, sort of, you know, 50-50 as to whether it comes out or not, I'm I'm not even certain that if the release date does hold, will it come out in cinemas worldwide, or will there be some compromises depending on if territories have cinemas closed and they just push through anyway, even if there are some places closed? It's um, Yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be a very tense and interesting next uh, 10 weeks. And as of recording, I think they released a new poster with in-theatres only on it, but other than that, we've not really seen anything else, unless I'm mistaken. Um, I've not seen anything on TV, no new trailers or anything. No, they haven't. They haven't got to the point where they spend their own money yet. Mm. And that's always that's always the uh, the threshold. But two point coming about the poster. I mean, I I hate to think what it's going to be like in like twenty years time when these posters come up for auction somewhere and be like, well, this is the one that was in <laughs> September and it said April, but it didn't have uh-huh. this PG thirteen on it, and like. How rare are some of these going to be compared to others? And they yeah. have to go by the MGM logo because right. this quote <laughs> new one had a different font for MGM than the ones that came before. Mm. So that was uh, that was that was another. There were basically two points of difference. That was one of the two. Is this going to be your retirement fund, James? Are you just right. hoarding all of these different variants of posters, <laughs> waiting for the day? That would be funny. It'd be the the it'd be the twenty twenty three James Bond calendar. It would just be all the No Time to Die posters with January, yeah. February, March, April, May, June, July. <laughs> Because yeah. I was thinking like a museum with like all the random different things. Like who the heck would want to see them? Because they're not even great posters. But I love this idea of a calendar. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. I would buy that calendar just for its novelty. It's like a flick book where the dates change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, Calvin, uh, I just wanted to say I, I loved your video about uh, whether the, uh, No Time to Die will be released in September or not. I thought it was... Uh, Quite, quite interesting, and I, I, I agree with you on a lot of it. Um, the, I, 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 I think if they are able to uh, release it, then they will. Uh, the, the big unknown is the situation in the UK, um, and the other situ- the, the other unknown is uh, how far the rest of the world is lagging with with the Delta variant and what impact that's going to have because the, the States is having uh, an uptick now and really it, I think it's going to depend on when that peaks and uh, what measures are taken and you know how 
how many people are hospitalized and and you know all, all this kind of you know, stuff that we're kind of so used to for the last 18 months la is already down to masks and 50 percent capacity in cinemas so and it hasn't mm-hmm. really kicked off that badly yet so even if they're open they're not going to get the box office that they thought they would yeah, I, as, I, as it stands I, I, today, if they were if they were released today, they'd be down on capacity. So. I, I I was I was fifty fifty before, so I'm, and I've been down. Uh, I've been been down at uh, sixty forty against. But uh, uh, I, I is anybody feeling confident? No. No. I write an open letter that says if New Zealand is a collective um, promises not to pirate it, we'd happily have it open here yeah. anytime you like. Yeah. But that would be just, you know, I don't know, yeah. a bit indulgent yeah. of me. Yeah. I mean, MI6 I... co founder uh, uh, Paul Atkinson uh, writes his own uh, letter. PO Box. Yeah, PO Box New Zealand. I, I was briefly between 55 and 60%. And that was about two weeks ago. And now I'm just, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to any percentages now. I'm just like, see what happens. Look, can anybody imagine a world in a world where um, they push ahead with a global release, but they don't do it in the UK because the UK is closed. That's really hard to imagine. That's the Um, interesting. Yeah. Like I, yeah, it's, yeah. Well, it's it's just an odd time here anyway, because obviously it's been in the news a lot that they've removed all uh, restrictions on you know wearing masks, social distancing, all that kind of stuff, and obviously cases are increasing and whatnot. So it's um, yeah, it's just going to be interesting to think what that could do to yeah. Well, and and let's not forget Asia as as we record this. This was the first official day of the Olympics in like in Tokyo, and it's like no crowds allowed. And and the thing is, like you know the the um the the japanese public is like very unenthusiastic about it um i think everybody's unenthusiastic about it well except american television networks and uh and 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 the american public you know there it's like 52 percent are in favor of course they don't have to deal with you know the super spreader uh things in their midst um i don't know i think it's fair to say that if a decision comes down it's going to be late Hmm. What, what? How? How close do you think it'll be? Like three, four weeks? Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I'd start start of September. I yeah, think we've, we've seen some interesting bits of news, sort of relating to cinemas in the UK over the past couple of weeks. Uh, two that probably impact this most, or we can look at most to reflect on. Um, that Dune has been pushed very slightly in both the UK and the US, and that's now coming out in October rather than September. So that's only a very slight delay which pushes it after summer. And then the news a couple of days ago that The Green Knight, which is an A24 film, has been pushed indefinitely in the UK. Mm. Which um, was supposed to come out next month. Yeah, that was supposed to come out very soon. So I don't know what we'll and see. There was, but- a pe- there was a piece in the Telegraph today saying that American distributors are quietly pushing UK release dates out. Mm-hmm. But we, I don't know which films they relate to because mm. it's on the Telegraph and you have to pay yeah. for it. Can can I talk some very boring statistics? Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Calvin. You had me with very boring. You had me with very boring. No, it's just like, uh, right, 4th of March 2020, um, the 
The delay was uh, 29 days before the UK release or 27 days before the premiere. Okay. On that's the one that we had problems with, right, David? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so it's a long time ago now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Second so of October, 2020. Uh, the uh, I can't. Yeah. When, when was it? Ah, I didn't make a note of when it was. Oh yeah, second of second of October, 2020. Um, d- then delayed to. The second of second of April twenty twenty one, which was forty one days before release, okay, and then on the twenty first of January twenty twenty one, it was delayed to the eighth of October, and then later the thirtieth of September, uh, in the UK at least, and that was seventy one days before release. So, um, if you go by twenty seven days, that is the third of September. Mm. If you go to forty one days, that's the twentieth of August. Uh, 71 days is the 21st of, of July, so that's already passed. So the average is 46 days, which would make it the 15th of August. Oh, oh, that's a really oh that that wasn't boring at all. That was quite interesting, actually. <laughs> that's that's oh. given us a countdown. I, 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 I like this. I, I've always liked you, Calvin, and uh, now now that you like my boring stats even more. <laughs> oh no, that was quite exciting. Uh, yeah. I, I think what we've got to bear in mind mostly is that this will come to a financial decision. And I think a lot of those decisions in the past have been swayed by whether or not it seems likely that there's going to be a decent financial return based on what other films have done. And between now and September, there are quite a few big budget films still to come out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, whether, I wonder if it will be sometime in August yeah. after, say, we've had the release of films like The yeah, Suicide you know, Squad. Yeah. The mm-hmm. thing that I stuck out to me, Sean, was um, the 80% drop-off of Week 2 Black Widow. You see, that's, that, re- that's really interesting, though, because that also has a simultaneous Disney Plus yeah. release. And yeah. you, you have to kind of think of how that's going to affect, say, family audiences who are probably – it's either – 80 pounds to go see a film in the cinema or 20 pounds to go see it at home. What they've done with No Time to Die is very confidently in the last week written only in theatres on their posters. So we know yeah. we're not going to get a streaming release. But my point was really is anybody who wanted to see it in theatres did the first week it came out and mm-hmm. then it died, right? And if that happens to Suicide Squad, mm-hmm. where the first week's great and then week two is down 80%, they've got to look at that. And Bond films make they have long tails in the cinemas, right? I mean, shit, I think Spectre was in US cinemas for six months, right? Um, yeah. If the, if, the, if the box office drops 80% week two, they can't justify releasing it because they're not going to make any money. Do you know what the drop was on um, Fast and the Furious? Because that was like Suicide Squad is also going to have a simultaneous sort of premium access. I just Fast and the Furious didn't, obviously. So I, I'm assuming that that's more of a... A comparable that they'll be looking at. I think its box office tally at the moment is at like 600 million, which is obviously in pre-pandemic times that would have probably made a billion or close to that. Um, but I, I don't it have... Dro- it dropped 60% week two. 60%, okay. And then it went 60% again week three. So hmm. it went to basic from 93 to 37 to 16, which is mm. pretty bad. Mm. 
Well, I think what what the, what I've read about this is that essentially, you know, you bring out all of the people who are going to see it, who are the fans who are, you know, anticipating it in the first weekend. The issue is now that they don't get so much passing trade, like people who might just spontaneously decide, right. oh, let's just pop to the cinema and see what's on. Oh, Black Widow's right. brilliant. We'll we'll go and see that. So it's that, and it is going to be interesting demographic-wise, because I think a lot of the comparables that we have at the moment skew probably a bit younger than the maybe a lot of the Bond audience, which is mm-hmm. tends to be a bit of an older crowd, and I don't know how that's gonna, yeah, how that's going to be affected. Um, yeah, it would be interesting anyway. Um, can I put in a quick footnote about Spectre being in the? Uh theaters for i think it was 150 days that was under kind of suspicious circumstances at least in the u.s i went to the very last screening really yeah okay because because skyfall was in theaters for 90 days and it made 300 and some 304 million in the u.s um it was in 150 days specter was and it was like you know 200 and was like it stayed below 200 for the longest time it was at 199 million 999,000 and something dollars yeah and then and then finally i got you know like i said this as a joke but i was like half serious i wonder if like sony just bought a bunch of seats just to push over the 200 (laughs) to push it over 200 because as soon as it went over 200 that was it it was gone but i heard i heard anecdotes about like you know between the weekends there was like hardly any, you know, be two or three people in the in the screens. Like, why the hell did they keep it in the theater that? I long? was at the very last screening of the West Coast, and um, there was two other people in it. Yeah, <laughs> and that's when it crossed the two hundred million mark, and then boop, boop's gone. So boop, clearly, gone. there's a contractual thing about payouts. But yeah, <laughs> right. I th- I think Sony made or somebody at Sony made a commitment. It's got to be two hundred, and it's like we're going to keep it in there because remember they had those two for one specials there for a while trying oh, I, to get yeah i in. only paid for one of the two tickets yeah yeah anyway <laughs> just thought i'd mention that so going back to your point sean a financial decision right yeah what was the final box office taking for specter uh in the us it's 200 million and one dollar <laughs> <laughs> worldwide i think it was 880 million yeah. uh yeah was 1.1 something right um, yeah yeah so- i mean it's i i i, I it's going to be tough when it does go under the box office um, analyst microscope because I think it is going to be like apples and oranges comparing, like you know, post uh, COVID. Well, absolutely. Uh, what's it yeah. called when you're in the middle of COVID? <laughs> you know, <laughs> as we still are. Um, whatever it is, you know, pandemic world. That's going to change. You know, for my video, I you know looked up and it's in 2019 worldwide. There were nine films that made over a billion dollars, and I I don't know if we'll see one for a we, little we while. We may never get back to it. Uh, possibly, yeah. Um, I mean, like I say, I think that, well, the highest grossing non-Chinese film this year is uh, Fast and the Furious 9 with about 600 million. Um, so also, also, it was telling with Black Widow. So the first week it was out, Disney also put out the Disney Plus take, which I forget how many million it was. 60. Okay, yeah, but then in the second week, oh, they don't put it out. So it's like, okay. That means it was uh, crap. That's right, yeah. But but it kind of bodes well for No Time to Die that if in its whole run pre-COVID, Spectre only made $880 million and a film like Fast and Furious can make 600 and however many million in during mm-hmm. COVID. That's not, that's not a terrible statistic. Like that could be 
quite a positive turnaround, all things and considered. Fast and, the, and Fast and the Furious 9 has had terrible reviews as well, so that's yeah. something else to uh, pull word of mouth. I mean, it doesn't help that they spent the most money ever on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, you know, and had like three publicity runs at it. I mean, the, 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 the P&A costs on this must be insane. It's it's a financial decision, but it's also an ego decision. It's like, okay, do you accept the notion that you're not going to have a billion dollars because of the pandemic? Um, I don't I don't know if they've accepted that. Uh, I I think that's a good point as well. Yeah, because there there was a you know, I, I don't remember what the first film to do more than a, a billion was, but then that became the target to shoot for, and then it, that was the the club that you had to join. And uh, you know, Bond did it, and then Bond didn't do it. And uh, but yeah, I, I think probably studios have to. Uh, Except that the the the, the billion dollar billion dollar club is no longer there. For at for least in the short sake. For argument's sake, let's say they go ahead with the release as currently scheduled, and let's say for argument's uh, sake, it gets seven hundred million worldwide, below Spectre, but you know, like doing considerably better than a lot of movies right now. Is that good enough, or does your ego say you have to? get that billion no matter what and we'll just keep delaying it until conditions are quote ideal unquote i don't know well i'm just looking at the numbers and both f9 and black widow opened for similar weekends and there's there's no path based on their openings and the drop-off as it stands there's no path to 200 million domestic in the u.s and you need you need three something to get into the billion dollar club when you add worldwide so right uh, shooting at 600 they could probably do it worldwide yeah. but um when you've spent 300 that's uh means you're losing money could could there be an argument made i just imagine someone will be having this would or will have had this debate somewhere of actually delaying it again and holding it off until the 60th and then shooting for the billion and then not only do you get that thing of saying oh well, maybe you'll break a billion but you also get saying we broke a billion on the 60th anniversary of James Bond, which would be a fantastic sort of marketing spree to go on. We waited five years to do it, but, you know. Maybe, yes, maybe. Especially if they don't see a clear path forward after after No Time to Die. Mm -hmm. Why not not delay it and um, make the most of the 60th and see if they can maximise profits and also... It gives them a bit more time to think about the next one. Although, as we know, uh, um, they're never really under any kind of time pressure to put out a new Bond film these days. These are all very like well thought out responses. I'm more like I'm 100% no, it's not coming out. <laughs> I don't know if I'm just very pessimistic about it, but I see the way that the world is going and. I don't think you can make the money back. Um, And I think that that's going to be disappointing to a lot of people. But I can't see them doing a one-week run of a Bond film. And with all the diehards go, oh, that's a bad word for it. Um, With all of like the big Bond fans going the first week and then just like having it trickle away. So I just don't think we're in the right climate. And I... I mean, David's been saying for a while, a 60th anniversary Bond film. I mean, we're going way back. And I think that he definitely hit the nail on the head a while ago. So that's 
Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of really great reasons that have been expressed as to like when they'll make the decision. But in my heart of hearts, I've already committed to the fact that it's probably going to be next year. Lucky we have other things to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure if conditions would be good enough next year. That's that's the thing that's making me mm. think, well, maybe they would just push ahead with it now because yeah. it, it's, I mean, th- there's a reason why, you know, a lot of these movies are coming out, why they haven't pushed back Fast and the Furious 9, because they could have got a billion dollars for that if it wasn't, you know, pandemic. Um, and I think, yeah, it's the kicking can down the road can only yeah go so long before it's like oh this this road's pretty long actually <laughs> I, tell you, I, I think i know why calvin mm. it's because fast and furious 9 only cost 200 million mm. so mm. if they were aiming at 650 or 700 they'd make good money mm. no time to die cost 300 not including the publicity and advertising money they've spent and lost Mm. So they need to hit six hundred and something to break yeah, even. But, uh, to uh, break uh, even, uh, they need to hit six hundred. I don't. I don't see a path to it right now. I, except, I, I, except at, at some point, uh, at some point, though, they're, they're going to realize that they they can't break even necessarily, and so uh, basically, it's just a question of uh, making the most of a, of a bad deal. That yeah. uh, how much money does Amazon have anyway? Actually, this is true. Yeah, and and. Uh, I I I I I wasn't I wasn't thinking this, but uh, now you've put the thought in my head, Paul. That um, once the takeover uh, has has um, gone through, then assuming it does go go, go through, but uh, maybe then there is going to be a slightly different dynamic to uh, what they do because mm. they don't mm. care about losing money at that point. You could scratch out only in cinemas and put only on private video and people would still be happy. Well, how much does MGM care right now? Because, I mean, baked into that... uh, Well, if the sale falls through, they will. Well, but but baked into that $8.45 billion thing is is Amazon assuming $200 million in debt. Oh, Oh, Christ. Both of you, uh, the... The the thing about how how much how much does Amazon uh, sorry how much does MGM care now? Well, uh, actually, that could be hugely important because um, they could be the, the, yeah they don't want to release it unless they can get their money back because they're not sure that the Amazon deal is going to go through. Absolutely, yes, I hadn't thought of that before. And it's no by by no means a slam dunk. That the deal goes yes. through. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, uh, yeah, because th- there is quite a lot of strong opposition to it. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, once the Amazon deal goes through, then I, I think that then uh, there is that then then the, the then relying upon it to actually produce a pro- profit is taken away. It doesn't matter if it makes a profit for MGM at the moment. It does. Yeah, absolutely right. Shit, I hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, the more I talk about it, the more I listen to you guys, the more I'm like, yeah, this ain't happening, is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we've seen MGM be very bullish up to the last minute twice before. Right? Yeah. La- last so September, reading their body language, don't bother reading their body language because it's mm. just not going to tell you what they're actually doing. Right. La- la- last year, uh, uh, there the, the, was no way I thought they should be putting it out in November, and they weren't delaying. They weren't delaying. They weren't delaying, and I thought, shit, they're gonna, they're not going to delay. 
but eventually they did. So, um, yeah. I think it will come down to if I think they will take the hit on a you know a fifty percent capacity for cinemas basis whatever, but it depends on if cinemas are completely closed or not. And then I think that will because, like I say, I, you know, they they must surely be smart enough to know that the whole billion dollar thing that's a long way off if at all now. And films don't stop making money once they're not in the cinemas anymore. They do have a life afterwards with licensing and whatnot. So. It, you know, do you just push through a slightly less than expected box office result to just get to the other end when you can actually get the film out in other ways and make money from it in different ways um, instead of just sitting on it the whole time? Uh, but I think it's just going to come down to whether cinemas are open or not. I think if they're closed in a lot of places, then, well, yeah. Again, again, Calvin, just, just one thing that I want to say about that is that I think... Um, People very often aren't reacting in a in, in any kind of logical way to what is happening. They are just they're, they're actually reacting to the way that they want the world to be working right now. Which uh, mm. I, I think uh, there aren't very many people who for, for who that's working out. But uh, but <laughs> you know a lot of people are still in denial. We're, we're you know we're, we're eighteen months into the pandemic. People are into into in denial. And they, and a lot of the time they aren't thinking clearly. So uh, I, 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 I kind of agree with what you say, but I, I, the the thing that I disagree with is that uh, that the people often don't realise that they're just being stupid. Hmm. The the other factor is um, there's a lot of money involved in the contracts to do with the box office take um to do with you know back-end payouts and residuals and stuff um that that got that was a big point of contention with wonder woman 1984 when they said we're just going to go straight to streaming and they had to pay cash out to the people that had back-end points as a like compensation for not having a box office because it was in the contracts so if the, if they release the film knowing it's not going to make the money they thought it would, then there's going to be a lot of people that don't get paid, mm. Mm. and that might be the reason they hold it back. Mm. So so here's a question: Does No Time to Die have the uh, potential to be the least performing financial Bond film? I'm not talking about box office. I mean, the box office might sound I'm talking impressive. budget to take ratio. Yeah, profit loss, maybe loss. Yeah, maybe, maybe. It could be the first Bond film to make a loss, yeah. Because the budget was just a tick under $290 million a year ago. Remember, they put that uh, regulatory filing, B25 Limited. Put it's out over that. 300 now. Right. It would have to be because, it, you know, this, you know, the 297 or whatever it was, it wasn't quite 290, 287, whatever it was, uh, was mid-year 2020. You've you've had increased, you know, you've had interest costs since and and so forth. Got yeah, as you said, it's got to be over three hundred. Does that um, does that budget include marketing as well? No, no, that's production. And then you know they've already spent a lot of money on marketing, <laughs> right? I mean, for example, I mean, Sean, you know, you not you not living here in the U.S. Like the Super Bowl is this big deal every year, and they bought a uh, Super Bowl ad. For no time to die in February of 2020. That's like 
five million, six million, just for thirty seconds, whatever it is. I, I I don't know the exact amount, but it's in the millions of dollars for one thirty-second spot. And you know there were all sorts of other promotions up until they delayed the movie till November, and then delayed it again, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's interesting that Bond is like at the beginning of like the blockbuster filmmaking movement, right? That had a lot of success, many sequels, increasing budgets, you know, greater effects. And we've seen this ballooning of budgets and ballooning of box office that's happening simultaneously with James Bond releases. Um, And that we might actually be seeing like the end of the billion dollar box office. Mm. Like this could really be like, when I, I talk this as like a, a Bond scholar where I'm like, ooh, here's a new avenue of, of thought. But this really could be, you know, uh, Bond films representing just sort of the evolution of, of the box office. And it is a question of being in denial. Have we moved to a new phase where we can no longer sustain this type of filmmaking, that we cannot congregate together um, to, to watch mass media and mass sports we want to we're trying to do it and the consequences i think are going to actually be pretty steep uh, for many of us for doing it and so i just i find it just it's a very interesting on the 60th anniversary you know when we look back on bond that this might be the end of a specific type of wave or phase now do i believe for the next bond film will they try to do the same thing absolutely apparently we as human beings don't learn (laughs) from the past at all eon's pattern is usually to slash the budget back down (laughs) when they reboot um Mm -hmm. casino was done on a a low budget so was god no and um license to kill is often referenced as like one of the worst performing um box office bond movies it was made for 32 it made 150 five and that's a ratio of about 4.6 right so if you take no time to die's budget of 300 and you apply the same quote unquote crap performance to it it needs to make 1.4 billion dollars right and it's never going to happen and i was thinking about this that well that i mean that's uh you know that's applied to all big budget filmmaking and i was thinking about this the other day bill the the equivalent i could you'd remember this about 12 13 years ago when gas hit five dollars a gallon in the states yeah the Hummer factory was like, you know, uh, maybe we shouldn't make these anymore. Yep. <laughs> right. No, I, um, it, the, the highest I personally saw the West coast, it was over five. It personally, I was like four fifty maybe where I lived, but yeah, it was, it was, and, and the car company said, oh, okay, we're going to come up with all these small cars, but then the price went down not too much after that. Suddenly they had a lot of small cars and people didn't want anymore, but they still didn't want those Hummers. And, uh, and yeah, we're looking at a bunch of Hummers in the parking lot right now. Right. I was about to say, it, way back in the day with Goldfinger, it set some sort of record, like the quickest movie to recoup its production budget or something right. like that, because it was made for $3 million. And in those days, most movies, you had like these long rollouts. You know, you, you start in the big cities and you gradually got to the smaller ones. But Goldfinger was an early example of it, it. It didn't open everywhere, but it opened a lot more widely than a lot of films did in in at that time. And they, you know, very quickly got their money back, and then and then some, um, because it was so popular. Yeah, I I I, I did a an analysis of the the um, Bond films in various ways a few years ago. So we it's a it's a bit out of date. I think I first did it after. 
Skyfall came out, but I, I, I did update it after Spectre. And um, when you look at the return on investment, uh, can anyone guess what the uh, top Bond film is? So this, is this is, you know, <laughs> if you put in a dollar, how many dollars do you get out? Which which film do you think is the is the top one there? Moonraker. This is a trick question. I'm going to say Thunderbolt. I'm going to say Doctor No. I'm going to say Tomorrow Never Dies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I have no idea, but I think it's going to be an obscure one. It's Doctor No. And because it it had a nearly 600% return on investment because it had a, a. Fairly low budget. It, mm-hmm. uh, it, it it's kind of obvious when you think about it because it it, it had a, a fairly low budget. It kind of uh, blew. You know, it, it 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 was just a complete blockbuster of blockbusters. And uh, and in fact, it goes the the the, the top films are Doctor No, Goldfinger from Russia with Love, Live and Let Die. Diamonds are forever. Thunderball. Mm, mm. The man with the golden gun. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a top ten must somewhere. That's really interesting. Sorry, I, I said it's six hundred percent return on investment, and it's no, it's six thousand percent return on investment well, for Doctor No. Wow. <sighs> Wait, did you mention Live and Let Die? Yeah, yeah it was like six. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah li- Live and Let Die li- was it was um yeah, it was two thousand two hundred. Okay. Percent. Yeah, and uh, if you want to look at the bottom of the list, who? who, who okay, who, who's going to guess? Guess the Spectre. The bottom, bottom three. Spectre. Tomorrow never dies. <laughs> <laughs> Die another day. It's going to be just the last three. Uh, no, it's it, uh, right from the bottom. Sorry, yeah, Quantum of Solace is at the very bottom with 150, 157%. It had a reported uh, production budget of $230 million. $230 million, what was that, 13 years ago? Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's... <laughs> Makes like no time that. to dialogue cheap, eh? <laughs> yeah. It, right, so second from bottom, the world is not enough. What? Ah. Third from bottom, Spectre. Die another day. Tomorrow never dies. License to kill. Oh, what they give the license to kill ratios right now. Uh, (laughs) The Living Daylights. A view to a kill. Shall I stop? No. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Can you post this again? Put a link to it somewhere because, like, these are, I find this really fascinating. I think that we just have these ideas of notions of like profit and profit margins. Like these numbers are just really fascinating, and I think maybe our listeners might want to see them. Oh, yep, yeah, Paul beat me to it, but I'll, I'll put the link in the description below. <laughs> okay, perfect. I, I I do think there's an interesting conversation to be had about the death of the billion dollar movie as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. in terms of film, because I, I think it's very easy to look at it pessimistically. And I think there are a lot of ways that we're pres- we're told that and presented that by the media in a very pessimistic value. You're like, oh, cinema's dying. I think it's great. But, I think yeah, it's great. It forced people, people to be more creative. It, yes. and, it, and the, the, in the lead up, in the past few years, we've got to see, we've actually seen the death of the sort of 
mid-budget movie, particularly action movies that sort of yep. yeah. middle-budget, like you've either had billion-dollar blockbusters or very small art house kind of releases. And I, I think miss it, that, it, op- Sean. it opens a really that. nice opportunity for for films to condense their budgets a bit more and for us to kind of escape this trap we've got into of everything being a franchise film. Maybe we'll right. be able to see some more new creative ideas come out of this. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, in the early years of the Marvel, the MCU, I mean, they were actually following kind of the Bond um, playbook where instead of, you know, they, it, they were like trying to hire people who, like in terms of directors, they were hiring people who were like, had not yet become big names, i.e. the Russo brothers. And so they could kind of get them again, relatively speaking cheap. Um, and then, and they were, they were more efficient in the early years. Then they became big hits. And then also Kevin Feige wanted to get out from under the thumb of, uh, the, the guy who had owned Marvel and sold it to Disney, but was still running Marvel. And then, you know, so he was able to get out from under his thumb and they started giving him more money, uh, for their movies. But now, uh, you know, Black Panther, I'm sorry, uh, Black Widow's uh, financials are going to be kind of suspect when it's all said and done, I would think. But it's kind of, they've got a bit more of a safety net than, say, James Bond does, even though James Bond's not going to go away, even if No Time to Die doesn't do well. This is not the end of James Bond. It's not going to kill James Bond because, as we've we've said, he's kind of entrenched in our popular culture society. Like, that's going to continue. But Marvel have a bit more of a safety net because they already have another sequel made and then another Marvel film, and they've got all these films made. So they can take a bit more of a gamble, which is why I kind of understand why No Time to Die is being pushed very tentatively, and it's a very patient wait to see if it's going to come out. I, I, I get it. There is an interesting thing there, though, kind of like you see this, particularly if you look at the history of film, you see a cycle sort of with, say, westerns or, or spy movies or or superhero movies, and they kind of go through phases and they kind of go up and then they come, they die back down. What James Bond kind of does so brilliantly is it adapts to that market. And mm. I, I do honestly think we will we will see James Bond movies far longer then we will see well-performing Marvel movies, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, even though we've got to wait right now for No Time to Die and it's a little bit painful, I think there's reasons to be optimistic. It's not all doom and gloom. Yeah, very well said. Good note to end it on. Sure. Mm. Thank you guys for uh, for joining me and a meandering conversation as usual. I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it when it's not too well-structured. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes couldn't have asked for a better panel with James, Sean, Kelvin, Bill, David and Dr. Lisa um, award winning Dr. Lisa <laughs> um, thank you very much for, for joining me and we'll speak to you again soon see ya bye, bye everyone Thanks, Paul. cheers <laughs>